This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It can be found on page 983 in the Black Pew Bible. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say welcome. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, thanks, <clears throat> thanks for enduring that. That kind of practical reality feels a little less reverent than we normally uh, like to be. So thanks for doing that with us. Um, let, me, let me just start off by praying and kind of recentering us, refocusing us uh, for, the, uh, for the message this morning. So would you join me as I pray? Spirit of the living God, I ask that you would turn our hearts toward the preeminence of Christ. I ask that you would open our spiritual eyes. I ask that you would unstop our ears. I ask you would make our hearts tender and receptive to the reality of the supremacy of Christ over everything. I ask that you would help that reality sink down deeper into our hearts and lives, sink down deeper into um, what orients our affections, what orients our hopes and dreams and lives and energy, what orients our imaginations, what orients our practices and patterns and routines and disciplines. I ask that the supremacy of Christ would... um, be bigger and brighter and more full and heavier in our lives than perhaps when we got here. And I ask that you would do that, Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you awaken me? Would you awaken us to your goodness displayed in Christ's power and majesty and glory? And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, last week, Andrew walked us through the shape and content of this text, and he walked us through some of the key pieces that we needed to understand in order to grasp some of the weight of what Paul wrote down. 
So I'm going to take the, the text and I'm going to provide what could be considered kind of just trying to extend that or drill down further or deepen what we heard last week. We lined out what the text proclaims. We lined out what it declares. And this week I'm going to spend time preaching about what kind of implications kind of cascade from the nature of these claims. I'm going to spend time unpacking some of the necessary understanding and the natural consequences that trickle down from such monumental statements. We tend to keep our Christianity at arm's length. We tend to kind of keep it on a a leash. We tend to keep it contained to certain domains of our lives. We tend to believe that Jesus is God, but we believe that the most when we're sitting in church and we believe it less when we're surrounded by people who don't believe what we believe. Or we believe it less when we're interacting with overtly anti-Christian institutions or even just explicitly agnostic environments. In those places and contexts, it's easy for us to believe our beliefs less. And I know we'd never say it that way. I know that many of us would answer questions about what we believe accurately. I know that even when we were, if we were handed a test in an anti-Christian climate, we would put down the correct answer. So I'm trying to dig deeper for us than mere information. I want to dig into our hearts this morning. I want to dig into our postures and the kind of postures that we esteem or the behaviors that we praise or the attitudes that we praise on things like social media. Do we have attitudes and affections that actually give different answers to questions about the supremacy of Christ? I could ask it this way. What holds your life together? What holds it together? Is it Jesus or is it your finances? What is preeminent in your life? Is it Christ or is it your kids or is it your reputation or is it your comfort is it Christ or is it the approval of your boss or the approval of your neighbors or the approval of your spouse we can fill in the right answer that Jesus is preeminent Jesus is supreme over everything answer on the test but then our hearts are tossed to and fro because we won't be stabilized by him We won't be held together by him, not because he can't do it, but because we want to be held together by someone or something else. And primarily, we want to be held together by ourselves, by our own ideas, our own plans, our own strategies for salvation. It's it's why we're tempted to add Christ, just like the Colossians were tempted to add things to Christ. We want to come up with our own answers I want to come up with mine, and instead of wanting Jesus to be who he claims to be, we want to figure it out on our own. And I know that because we tend not to listen to him, or he he says things and we flat out just don't believe him. And it's easy to believe him here when we're all singing and loving one another, but the patterns of our lives, the rhythms of our lives, many times reveal a different reality. And Christian maturity is being able to look right at that. 
by not shying away or trying to avoid that. Christian maturity isn't being perfect. It's being imperfect in very specific ways and being able to face it and not pretend that it isn't happening. It's not, it's not being like a man who looks in the mirror and sees what they really look like and then walks away and completely forgets what he saw, James tells us. So today, Today, like every single Sunday, we're going to look in the mirror, the perfect mirror of the Word of God, and we're going to find spinach in our teeth. And we'll be tempted to walk away and forget that. But we want to see rightly and then deal with what we find because God does not show you your sin. God does not expose your weakness. God does not reveal your foibles to you because he wants to rub your nose in it or because he wants to laugh at you or shame you or point to your sin and mock you or embarrass you or or try to make you feel stupid for it. He points out your sin and your weakness so that you can be free from it. From all the fears in your life, free from the fear of being found out, free from the fear of not fitting in, the fear of not keeping up with the Joneses, the fear of seeing who you really are, a sinner and a deeply needy person. You see, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the way that the fear of God works is when you're fearing God, that sets you free from all the other fears in your life. So what we need is to hear the facts presented to us in this text. This explanation about Christ is the way things are. So we should come to grips with that and then work really hard to notice areas of our hearts and areas of our lives where the true way that things are challenges the way we act toward them. Where Christ's supremacy challenges the ways that we love other people. Where Christ's supremacy challenges the ways that we behave. I'm, com- I'm convinced that we need more than anything is to see those challenges beyond merely giving mental assent to the facts of this text, much like the way that we would give mental assent to the fact that Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, we need to be awestruck by that reality. We need to feel the weather that surrounds the mountain of the preeminence of Christ in real time in our real lives. And I want to help us get up close, up close against the mountain this morning so that we look up and see it and feel the sheer tonnage of the glory of the preeminence of Christ towering over our entire lives, towering over your pain, towering over your sin, towering over your weakness and frailty and demanding that we reckon with it. That's my goal this morning because Christ wasn't given a list of altogether new objectives to be accomplished by God the Father. He wasn't the sequel to a movie storyline. He's the reason for everything. Everything. He's the reason for everything that was. He's the reason for everything that has been, that will be. And my deepest longing is that we would love that truth and not merely agree with it that we would take comfort in it, and that we would hope and delight in it. 
And we're going to do that today by, by trying to be amazed by the preeminence of Jesus Christ. We're going to do that today by trying to be amazed by Christ's preeminence over all creation, his preeminence over the church, his preeminence in his presence, and his preeminence in the reconciliation of all things. First, Christ is preeminent over all creation. Look with me again at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or, dom or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Stop. What's, what's the impact of those kind of statements on our lives? What's the impact of those statements on your life today? Why does it matter on a Monday afternoon that Christ is preeminent over all creation? Those are the kinds of questions that I want to ask this morning. Questions that are really sophisticated, like who cares? So what? We can so easily do church just like the way we do everything else in our lives. Astonishing truths shouldn't become white noise in our lives. We just read that everything that you can think of, everything that you can perceive, everything that you can learn about or discover or explore about the universe is because of Christ. Firstborn of all creation does not mean born first from out of creation. It means he is superior over all of everything. Christ is over all creation in authority and rank. He was, period, before anything was. And Christ, Christ, get this, he distributes existence to everything else. He gives being to all other creatures and created things. Andrew said this last week. There are two conceptual categories that exist. There is God, and then there is everything else that isn't God. And we exist in a categorical reality that God exists outside of and breaks into. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And you can't contemplate that too much. You can't look up at the enormous truth too much. You can't ogle and stare and gawk at that reality too much. It's good for you when your jaw hits the floor. When you reflect on the enormity of Christ's preeminence over everything, over everything, John, John 1 reminds us of that, that stars and galaxies and supernovas and planets and moons and our sun and our solar system, all of it was made through Christ and for Christ. Mountain ranges and the Grand Canyon and rainforests and oceans and rivers and landscapes, all of it was made through Christ and 
before Christ. He ranks in complete authority over all demons and all angels and all governments and all powers and all principalities everywhere. And these things went from non-existence into existence through him and for him. From the bottom of the ocean where there exist animals that we'll never even know about, all the way to subatomic particles that are so small that it hurts our brains to think about them, and every single space in between. All of it exists through him, and all of it exists for him, and he's the one that holds all of it together. Christ assigns and he preserves cohering. He preserves consisting. He keeps the universe working. All the workings of all created things in the universe owe their consisting to Jesus Christ. There's about 8 billion people in the world right now and all of them owe every breath to Christ holding their bodies together. Every blood vessel, every cell, every gland, every single part of them holds together every millisecond of every single day because Jesus Christ tells it to. Let that reorient all other things in our lives that compete. Because right now, other things in your life are competing to tell you that they're holding you together. That they're preeminent over everything. That they're more important than everything. There's things in your life that are competing for the preeminence that only Christ possesses. All other religious ideas, all other concepts or or ideas about how to be whole and healed, all other ideologies, all other philosophies of men, all of them sit down here below and underneath all of his authority. Everything else is underneath him. You can't feel the significance of that reality too much. The more you understand the distance, the more you see his glory. It's completely mind-boggling. One time I had a friend who wasn't a believer, and he and I were having lots of uh, conversations about Jesus. And one day he said to me, he says, I don't believe in what you're talking about. And even if I did believe, the idea of you telling me that you understand anything about God is like a flat screen TV trying to be communicated how it works to an ant. And the funny thing is, is that he's wrong. He's completely wrong because that gap is way bigger than that. Way bigger. It's infinitely bigger. And friends, that's the truth. That's the reality. His preeminence over all creation should be staggering. It's not like a mountain that you can climb and see the view from the top and then hike back down. The discoveries of his preeminence are endless. His excellencies never stop. You can't know enough and you can't know something deep enough to get to the bottom. It keeps on going and going and going without stopping forever, forever. Second, he's preeminent over the church. It says Christ is the head or the ruler over the church. At this point, we should notice something. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Do we remember in the Bible, in the Bible, where else this kind of language is utilized? We see that in Genesis, God created mankind in his image, and he created mankind through the word, and he created them in his image, and Paul's very familiar with that kind of image language, and he's telling us that God's son, the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-existing Christ, the Messiah, is the image of the invisible God. The allusions back to creation are thick in this part of the text. 
And then it continues to build. It builds on itself. It says, he's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all the created universe, things you can see and things you can't see. He's the ruler over the good guys, and he's the ruler over the bad guys. He's the ruler over sunsets, and he's the ruler over tornadoes. He's the ruler over cancer, and he's the ruler over antibiotics. He's the ruler over evil demons, and he's the ruler over good angels. All created things were created through him and for him. And the crescendo of this text is still ramping up when the author says he is the head of the church. Why would he say that? Is the church just kind of the next created thing on his list to check off? Because he's already covered it, right? He's already covered it. It's a created thing. It's people. It's the bride of Christ, his body, all believers all over the whole world. Did he just want to name this explicitly or is he getting at something else? And what we see in verses 18 to 20 is a shift from creation his preeminence over creation to his preeminence over future realities and the new creation. Verse 15, Christ is firstborn of all creation. Verse 18, he's also firstborn from the dead of the new creation. The church is his new creation people. That's why it follows that Paul would shift to speaking about the church right here. Paul's covered the domain of all that is and all that has been. Everything that is is a product of the first creation and it's all been attributed to Christ and that's not the end of the story. The story develops because your hope to have your sins washed away has a recreation purpose to it. Christ is not gathering a bunch of sinful people so he can forgive them and then transport them to some hidden dimension of heaven to become mindless, angelic furniture for all eternity. He's the firstborn from the dead so that in everything he would be preeminent, both of what was and what is right now and whatever will come ahead. There's two phases in the universe. The first one is everything up until Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And now it's phase two and Jesus is the head of the church ushering us into new creation, which is to say he's the ruler of the new creation people. A new heavens and a new earth people, and we exist in the overlap of those two realities, in the already and the not yet. The, the church are a people who are coming back to the Father from original creation, back to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Christ died, the curtain to the Holy of Holies was torn in two, and after Jesus ascended, he sent us his Spirit. Listen to this quote from G.K. Beale, theologian and author. The main point in the comparison is that just as the pre-incarnate Christ was the divine sovereign over the temporary first creation, so certainly he will be the divine human sovereign over the new everlasting creation inaugurated by his resurrection his defeat of evil power, the establishment of the church, and his reconciling work and consummated in the entirety of the new heavens and new earth. Christ's historical work of bringing about the new creation in his resurrection is not to cause us to lose sight of their pre-existence before history, since the former is but the revelation of the latter. Imagine all of history being guided and aimed to the moment of the pre-existent Christ's incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then all the future kind of streaming 
forth into new creation with the center that holds everything together being Christ and his exaltation. Jesus Christ is the head, the ruler of the new creation population, and that is to say the church, the church. Third, he's preeminent in his presence is how I've worded it here. But what I mean is that by his spirit, human beings experience the presence of God again, like they were meant to. In the first creation, you had a garden. In that garden, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. That's what Adam was made for. That's what he was made for, to be in the presence of the living God. And Adam's job was to subdue the earth with his wife Eve, have children, and spread that mission across the face of the earth. God's image throughout the earth and experiencing God's presence throughout the earth. But after the fall, we read the accounts in the Old Testament of the tabernacle with the Israelites. And we read about the building of the temple being the place that the presence of God dwelt. If you wanted to be close to the presence of God, then you had to be close to the tabernacle or you had to be close to the temple or later in history, the temple. One theologian puts it this way, the presence of God's holy of holies, the presence of God's holy of holies on earth was the most preeminent reality in Israel. It was the thing that set them apart from everybody else. And the point is, is that the presence of God on earth at that time was specifically located in a way that it wasn't in the beginning. So today, if you want to be with God, if you want, to, if you want the presence of God, where do you find it now? And you find it here. The answer to that question is through union with Christ. Listen to this quote. God's tabernacling presence on earth has now been more fully expressed in Christ's incarnation than in the old architectural, architectural temple. And God was well pleased. It pleased him to do, to do this. The spirit of Jesus continues that earthly presence in the church as the true form of the temple since Christ's ascension. That fact will be critical when we begin to face some of the false teaching that's threatening the church in Colossae. And that'll be more in the chapters to come. The idea that in him, all the fullness of God, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That means whatever in your life, Whatever in your life is luring you away from the presence of God to the presence of other saviors is insufficient and is idolatry. His words and his works are what you need in your life. They're all that you need. To add anything to Christ adds nothing to your proximity to God. Aestheticism, rules, regulations don't get you any closer to God. New age spirituality or transcendental meditation or religious traditions or your family patterns and habits, none of it gets you closer to God. Wholeness, purpose, meaning, all of it comes from union with Christ. Whether you're searching for God or you're just searching to belong somewhere, searching for a family, it's found in Christ. 
If you're lost, you can be found in Christ. If you're alone, you can be adopted into the family of God through Christ. If you find yourself flimsy and tossed around by the newest trends, sturdiness of mind and heart and soul is found nowhere else but in Christ. If you're broken, healing comes from Christ. If you're in sin, forgiveness comes from Christ. If you're struggling, power comes from the Spirit of Christ. If your life is in shambles or your heart's in shambles, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the preeminent place for the presence of God. Fourth, he's preeminent in his work of reconciliation. The brokenness in this world is not how the story ends. In the Bible, we can see the kind of broad movements of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And restoration requires that things be reconciled. And not merely reconciliation of people, but the reconciliation of all things. All things will be renewed and restored and reconfigured, and Christ is the source of all of it. All the consequences of the fall will be reversed through the power of the cross of Christ. The reconciliation of all things is a wholesale restoration, but this text does not mean that every person will be saved. It means that all things will be dealt with and resolved. Those that are in Christ will be reconciled to the Father forever in the new creation And those outside of Christ will be reconciled to their eternal state outside of Christ in outer darkness. You see, in the end, everything will be squared. Those who repent and believe and love God will be squared with his salvation and his rest. And those who reject Christ will will be squared with his coming judgment. This text is far from an argument for universalism. It's emphasizing Christ's finality, Christ's preeminence in fulfilling completely all the work that he set out to accomplish. Listen to this theologian. This text does not indicate universal salvation, but that at the consummation, Christ will bring about a harmony of all things in the new eternal creation after decisively judging evil and putting it in its judicial place. Thus, the idea of reconciliation in this passage is a reference to the restoration of all things. Christ will bring about the final order to the reordering of the entire cosmos. Christ will bring perfect execution of justice in his cross or the perfect execution of justice in hell, in the outer darkness. Christ will bring harmony where there is disruption and disharmony. And Christ will bring beauty to places that look destroyed. Christ will bring reconciliation to everything that exists in the new creation. This is Christ's eschatological preeminence. By the blood of his cross, he makes peace. And the peace that he makes one day will be the peace that characterizes the entire creation. And and as we move around the corner to close this morning, I want to ask us again, what kind of impact does an impressive text like this have on us? Do you feel the weight of it? Does it matter to you? Who cares? So what? And when I try to answer that question in my own heart, 
I'm struck by one aspect of Christ's preeminence that's deeply implicit in this text, but that we can easily miss if we read past too quickly. All things in the first creation were created through him and for him, and all things in the new creation will be created through him, and they will be for him. We read elsewhere in the Bible that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and in the middle is you and me. So, I began today pleading with us to be amazed at the majesty of the mountain of the glory of Christ. And I began pleading with you to see the height and depth and width of his supremacy above and beyond everything else in your life, everything else in our lives. And I want to turn this message before I'm done to another aspect of his supremacy, and that's his love for his bride. Romans 8 says it this way, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, no, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's think about that today. He can make that promise because he's preeminent over all that stuff. He can make that promise because he's preeminent over, ev- or pre- preeminent over everything with love for you, for you, over tribulation. He's preeminent over distress. He's preeminent over your persecution or your famine or over poverty or danger or violence or sickness and disease. He's preeminent over life. He's preeminent over death. He's preeminent over angels and rulers. He's preeminent over what you're facing right now. And he is preeminent over what you will face in the future. He's preeminent all the way to the top and all the way to the bottom. And that's why his love can always reach you. Always, always, always. He's the image of the invisible God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is before all things. By him, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth. They were created for him, and they were created through him. And then he died on a cross in the most glorious act of love for you, in the most glorious act of loving submission to his own father. The glory of the grace of God in Christ is the glory that should truly cause our jaws to drop this morning. 
He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and became a servant. The distance that God stoops to us is bewildering. The image of the invisible God climbed onto a Roman cross and allowed created beings, created beings that he was holding together to crucify him. The firstborn over all creation became a little baby and lived a life full of suffering and poverty. The ruler of all rulers and authorities allowed a corrupt court to condemn him to death. The sustainer of the universe sustained his own execution so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could be in his presence, so you don't have to be a slave to your sins, so that you can be transformed, so that you can look in the mirror and see what's there and not walk away and pretend like it's not, so that you can be remade and reborn, so that his father can be our father so that we could be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the son that he loves who redeems us and forgives us from our sins. And there's no place else to go. There's no place else to hide. There's no place to run. Christ, this Christ who formed you and the rest of all the universe offers you the words of life. He's the answer to all all that we struggle with. He's the answer to our parenting struggles. He's the answer to our marriage struggles. He's the answer to our broken relationships from crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loves us. This preeminent Christ loves us so we can actually let our perspectives change. We can let ourselves die and be crucified and live a life of love and obedience through faith in him and him alone. And that's why we take communion every single week here at Redeemer Fellowship. It's to remember and proclaim that the preeminent one died for our sin, died so that we could die, and he lives so that we can live. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So this morning, if you're placing all of your hope and faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you're placing all of your hope and faith on his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, if you're trusting him for your righteousness before God, we invite you to come forward and take communion. The way we do that is we, we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. 
We'll have a station down here in front and one in the balcony. We'll have two in front, one in the balcony. And we'll also have over here to my left a gluten-free and self-serve station. And then further to my left, underneath the stained glass window, we have prayer ministers who are here to honor others and serve others by praying for them for anything that they need or desire prayer for. Um, so in a minute, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pray and invite the musicians to come back up. But as I pray, man, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to put, um, put his finger on a spot in our lives that might be raw or painful, but is a place that we resist allowing the preeminence of Christ to influence how we live our lives, how we do relationships, how we love our families. Um, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to do that kind of work in us. And I, and I do that because I hope that we would be the kind of people who expect to hear from the Holy Spirit in that way weekly. Um, because we have a loving Father who doesn't rub our nose in it, but also doesn't allow us, allow us to stay in our sin or rebellion. Um, he wants maturity for us. And he offers it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you bow your heads with me as I pray? So Heavenly Father, would you, uh, would you transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you reveal to us places that we are in charge of our own lives, we're in charge of our own salvation, we're in charge of our own wholeness or maturity, our own confidence or self-esteem or like places, places that we uh, are defensive or resist the uh, invasion of your love into our lives. Holy Spirit, would you reveal those and would you push on them? We trust the scalpel of the good surgeon this morning. We trust you. You're not messing with us. You don't get a kick out of our pain. You sympathize with our weakness. So before we take this, um, before we participate in communion, would you bring things to light for us to reflect on and to repent about? Would you turn our hearts to you again, again this week? And would you glorify Christ in our midst and in each one of our hearts this morning, I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.